Welcome to another message in God's wonderful Word. Here at the Hillsdale Bible Church, we aim to learn God's way, that we might live God's way. May the words you hear today draw you closer to Him. Open your Bibles and your heart as we learn together in this message. John chapter number 1, John chapter number 1, today our focus will be between verses number 9 and verse number 13, John chapter 1, 9 through 13, last week we needed two services to handle verses 1 through 5, and uh, it was the morning service, and if you weren't here for the evening service, that is online now, you can go to our website and pull it up and Listen to the second half of the message last week. Today we're here in verse 9 through verse 13. It says, There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Heavenly Father, with your word in front of us this morning, we come to you and we ask that you might teach us from this passage and challenge us thoroughly. Examine us, Lord, and see where we are with you. Perhaps there might be some among us who need to know you as Savior. We thank you for the message of your word. It is before us now. It speaks of our, our dear Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. May our hearts be warmed when we talk of him. May our attention be drawn to him. May our hearts be ready to worship him and our wills ready to serve him. Whatever work you do in our midst, may it be done today in each of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two times of year that uh, I try to avoid the stores. Uh, the day after Thanksgiving and the day after Christmas. The day after Thanksgiving is the day when it's supposed to have all the best uh, deals for you to buy things. The day after Christmas is when you bring them all back. I worked for Walmart years ago. And uh, I recall that day very vividly. And the number of shopping carts we needed to fill to take things back to the shelves. It was amazing how many things came back. I read a statistic that one out of every seven people take back gifts. So if you're sitting around six other people now, it's probably one of those other people, right? 
but one out of every seven take back gifts. Now, the reason for that, there's a lot of them. But what it comes down to is they didn't want that. They wanted something else or different size or whatever. But there was kind of the, the phrase rejected goes with all those things. And, and uh, when we go into our passage here today, that's kind of the word that we're going to camp around today. That little word rejected. Last week we spent time in the first five verses here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's His deity. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. There's His, his ability to create. He is the creator of this world. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. John tells us clearly, Jesus is life. Jesus is light. And by virtue of who he is, he also possesses these things. Life and light. And he gives them to those who desperately need them. That's us, right? It says, the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. That's a very alarming phrase at the end of the verse. It did not comprehend it. It, did, it could not defeat him. Obviously, that's great. But it did not want him. That's what it says. The light did not want him. The, the darkness did not want the light. Now this is the very point of our study here today. We're going to take two views of this passage 9-13 through 13 today. And the first one this morning, the second one this evening. Speaking of those who reject and those who receive. And it seems remarkable to me, as I was thinking through this passage, how remarkable it is that the, the God who created this world, the God who has shown himself to this world, is rejected by this world. That is a remarkable thing to me. But it's clearly expressed in this text passage here. John, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, writes this passage about 60 years after the ministry of Christ on the earth. It's about 90 A.D. as he's writing these words. And I, I picture him there, maybe it's just my imagination, but he looks back over time and he recalls how Matthew wrote his gospel and Luke wrote the gospel and Mark wrote the gospel, and, and Matthew and Luke especially record the birth of Christ. They give us the details that we speak of every single year, the episodes including wise men, and shepherds, and angels, and, and Mary, and Joseph, and, and all the scene that's before us. Then when you put Mark's gospel in there, he chimes in with a, a vivid explanation of, of the ministry of Christ. He goes through and says so often, immediately this happened, immediately that happened. And he, he just kind of gives us his fast-paced run through three years of ministry, through teaching, through miracles, through all these events that these gospel writers have shown us to point out that Jesus indeed is God. All these writers together have also showed us the full rejection 
of those people that he came to. The trial, the crucifixion, the insults, the beatings, the death, the burial. Now we like the fact that everyone ends with the same kind of chapter. The resurrection of Christ. We also have record of his ascension too. But when you look back on the record, as even John would have perhaps, uh, it's kind of hard to, to look at it without the view that we've grown up with. We've spent time, years in church for many of us. We perhaps were saved at a young age and we've heard the same record over and over and over again of the birth of Christ and the life of Christ and and such, and, and all the glorious things he's done, and, and we like to focus on that, don't we? We like to go through it and say, he did this for us, he did this for us, look, here's his grace, and look, here's his mercy, and look, these things he's done for us, and we rejoice in all that. But today, I, rather than bask in all those kind of things, let's ask a question, and it's maybe a little hard for us because of where we are, but with all he did... When did he ever harm anyone? With all that he did, when did he ever take something from anyone? What had he done that would cause the world to reject him as the world had? Usually we reject those who have done negative things, right? We see them and we say, oh, that's not somebody I want to, I'm interested in that because of this thing they've done or that thing they've done and it's usually negative things. Does it bother you that Jesus gave sight to a blind man? Hmm. Does it bother you that Jesus made the lame to walk? Do you find him repulsive because he healed a leper or that he raised the dead? He fed you with fish and bread. Now that's a good reason to reject him, right? You would rather have had a ham sandwich. Why? Why? As amazing as it is, why was he rejected? Why was he rejected? Here, John is recording for us that we are seeing God. That's what he's saying. We've seen him. We've touched him. John would rejoice in all that. And yet, all the way through, he says, and they rejected him, they rejected him, they rejected him. The verses just continue that way throughout this narrative that he gives us. Let's go through the facts here this morning. From verse 9 through 13. Here are the facts that are set before us. It says, first of all, that there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. There's his identity to start with. The true light. The true light. An older commentary by the name uh, Ryle, the last name, Bishop Ryle, they call him, uh, said that he's the true light in four ways. He says he's the true light in contrast to deceivers. He doesn't lie. He is, a true, he is a real light in contrast to the dim and shaded lights of pictures and types. The Old Testament, we have many pictures of Christ and types of Christ, and, and he's the real light. 
He is the actual light in contrast to all others that merely reflect light from another source. You see, he shines by his own accord and borrows from none. The moon has to borrow. Stars have to borrow. The sun is shines. He is the supreme light in contrast to all that is ordinary and common. We would add to that list that he records. He is the pure light. He is the genuine light. He is the perfect light. He is the true light. We, we read in John's writing here, he started in the first few verses saying, He is the Word. And the Word is important to us because He is the very message God has for the world. He is the Word. But He is also called the light because He shows exactly what the world needs to see. He's a true light. And when He shines upon men, two things become evident. Number one, by nature of his holiness, it shows our condemnation. It shows that we're guilty and we're in great need when we measure next to that light. But also, he shows us that we can be saved. He shows us the way because he is the way. He is that light that the world desperately needs. So he shines on this world, as it says here. He enlightens every man. And I think it's a very remarkable thing. The very fact that he, the creator of the whole world, has to come to that same world and tell them about himself. He has to come to them to tell them, about himself. Now, God has not uh, uh, not kept quiet about himself. Scripture shows several things that God has done. I'll just give you a sample of it. In Romans chapter number 1. Let's go over there for a moment. Romans chapter 1. I'm going to need a bookmark here. Let me use this. Romans chapter number 1. God has revealed himself. Going out of his way, if you would say it this way, to get man's attention. In verse 19 of chapter 1, Romans. He says, because that which is known about God is evident within them. God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature, has been clearly seen, being understood through what was been made, that which has been made, so that they are without excuse. He spoke to this world through creation. Very clear message, creation. And yet, man, what does he do with that message? Verse 21, and even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. They became futile in their speculations. Their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise. They became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image, an idol. Instead of worshiping the Creator. Travel over to Hebrews chapter number 1. Hebrews chapter 1. First couple of verses here as well. How God spoke. Spoke through creation. Man turned that into idolatry. 
in Hebrews chapter 1, God, it starts in the very first word, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. If you're looking at your Bibles, two-thirds of it is Old Testament. Prophets. Prophets, 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 prophets. They all end with ayah. Right? Say, okay, that must be a prophet if his name ends like that. We, we have all these prophets in there. God was speaking. 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 And Jesus said to them, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who were sent to you. How often I wanted to gather you like children are gathered together, like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were unwilling. You would not. You would not. God spoke through the prophets, and they killed them. Here in Hebrews, verse number 2, in these last days, He has spoken to us in who? His Son. He spoke to us in these last days, in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world, and he is a radiance of his glory, and the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he has made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Sum that up in one word. He is God. God. In the last days he has spoken to us. Do you realize that if God used creation and God used the prophets and God sent His Son, the message must be important. Don't you think? It must be a vital message that He's trying to get to the people of this earth. What is He trying to tell them that's so important? He musters all of creation to speak of it. He sends all of his prophets to speak of it. He sends his son to speak of it. And John tells us here that Christ gives light. He's a true light. He gives light to illumine every single man. Each man. That's not a general announcement to anyone who's listening. Scripture tells us the fact that eternity is written on the heart. Every soul on this planet, just by fact that they live and that they breathe and they're fashioned by His hand, has been by some degree, in some manner, touched by God. We're not merely physical creatures. He's given to us a soul and a spirit, hasn't He? Now, I'm not talking about some universal salvation here or anything of that. I'm talking about a universal accountability. The message has been declared. What is people going to do with it? What are we going to do with it? No one will stand before God's throne of judgment and say, I was never given a glimpse of the light. No one can say that before his throne. Perhaps, and I wonder at times, if the people of our day that are living among us right now will be more accountable than others. Why? 
We have advancements in knowledge. We have advancements in science. We have advancements in technology. We have the ability to communicate a message so rapidly. Right? No other generation has had this. I tell this to my students at Cornerstone often. I said, as we're going through Corinthians or we're going through Thessalonians, I said, imagine if Paul had the internet. Imagine what he would do with such a tool like that to get the message out. We live in that day, don't we? The message. How quickly does it take to get one, one little smidgen, as we say, of, of gossip spread over half the globe? Our abilities are enormous. And the message is before us. And I wonder at times if our generation might be more accountable for that message. But John says there is a true light that has come into the world. And it's enlightened every man. So let's mark that as fact number one. He did, right? He did. He did come into this world. And he did enlighten. We know that. Now mark that as well in John, verse number 10, that he was in the world. He was in the world. Yes, he was the creator of the world, coming down to the planet. He was in the world. He was there to be seen and heard and touched. He was there. He was in the world. That's a fact. He didn't just send some sort of a a representative to come and speak on his behalf. and, And he came himself. And he stood down here. And he walked among us. Mark that down as a fact. He was in the world. Another fact in verse number 11. He came to his own. He came to his own. John keeps stating these things and adding to them as he goes. But our Lord Jesus Christ, God himself, has come to us. He has come to us. He has come to our world. Though he made it, he came to this world. He came to us. He came to his own. Even his own people. What he had to say was important, something we need to hear. With all that as the fact in verse 9, and the fact in verse 10, and the fact in verse 11, of what he did, what he did, what he did, we have this but that follows. It's a tragic response. It says in verse number 10, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not. You see those two words? Did not. Did not know him. Did not know him. That is not accidental. I consider that intentional. Some people call that a failure. (laughs) It was an intentional failure, if that is what you want to call it. But they failed. They did not recognize him. They did not know him. Now, it's an interesting word here, by the, my choice of word recognize here. It's a knowledge from experience. It's a knowledge that you grow from experience. I, I know things because I, I touch them and I work with them and I tear them apart. And I could, if you want me to tear up your laptop right now, I could do it. I did it last week on mine. Alright? I've come to know what's inside. And it, if you have one extra screw, so did I. No big deal. But uh, um, 
we learn things that way, don't we? We come to know things. We recognize things because we've seen it before. We've done that before. We've been there before. That's the word here. Which means something to me as I'm thinking it through. They had an experience with him, but they did not know him. They, they, they experienced the fact that he healed the sick, right? He had healed the sick. And they were all aware of that. That's an experience they had. He cured the deaf. There were those in the, in the vicinity when he cured the deaf and they saw that remarkable miracle. That was an experience. He raised the dead. You know the story of Lazarus? The story of the one time when the widow and her son, her son in the coffin being carried through the street, he stopped it and he brought that young man back to life. The little girl, the little girl with Peter and John and those nearby, when he brought her back to life, that's an experience, right? How many did he heal that later rejected him? We don't have a record of that. Lepers calling for his crucifixion. We don't have a record of that. The blind who now see calling for his crucifixion. We don't have a record of that. But scripture does say this. They did not know him. They did not know him. They did not know him. You know, here's an eye opener to me as I was thinking this through. For all those who build their faith on experience. And a lot of people do. They hang on to experiences. They are not one step closer to knowing him than before. Because experiences have a short shelf life. They're always being replaced by another experience. One great thing has to be outdone by another great thing. We count on things and experiences. We always need more. Because we're not satisfied with one. In our world, when it measures that way, it will never come any closer to knowing him. This is how John would write it in chapter 12 of this same book. John 12:37. But though he had performed many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. They did not. They did not. How many of us are still counting on some sort of big experience to cause us to believe it? We're hanging on to one... Give us an experience and we'll believe, right? Show us a sign. Have you ever heard that before? Just one. Oh, I know. Some of us would do it in a sneaky manner. God, I won't tell anybody. Just do some miracle in front of me. You don't say that, do you? How often do we, do we want that one big thing to say, we can anchor to this experience? Huh. Listen to this one. I'll just read you a story. This is a true story. I believe it's a true story because Jesus told it. All right? I don't think he ever deceived. He never deceived. And if he told this story the way it was, I think it was true. This is what he said. There was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in the splendor every day. And there was a poor man named Lazarus. He was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides... Even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and said, 
But he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus at his bosom, and he cried out to them and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received the good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He says, No, Father Abraham, but if somebody goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Did you hear that last phrase? What's it take to persuade a man of his need to repent? Somebody rising from the dead? Does that bring you to one thought in your mind? Who rose from the dead? Our Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It's interesting how Jesus said these words. They will not repent, even if should someone should rise from the dead. In other words, experiences won't save them. They can't camp on these and hang on to them and claim they, that that's where their faith is. They do not know Him. That's what it says, Right? They do not know him. They did not. In verse 11, John 1, 11, He came to his own, and those who were his own did not, there are those words again, did not receive him. They did not receive him. Oh, this word is a simple word. It's, it's the kind of word you like at this time of year. You go and knock on a door and somebody opens the door and they receive you. They welcome you. They give you that hug. They let you know that you're welcome in their place. It's a beautiful word. You like it, don't you? Receive. In that fashion. Matter of fact, it's the same word that Jesus uses in John 14 when he says that I will take you to my Father's house. The phrase is to receive. I'll come and receive you unto myself. That's a welcome term. We like it. What do you just notice about verse number 11, though? They did not receive him. He was not welcome. This is why A.W. Pink wrote a caption on this. He says, how appropriate are the terms here used? Note the nice distinction. He was in the world, and therefore within the reach of inquiry. But to the seed of Abraham he came, knocking, as it were, at their door for admission, but they received him not. The world is charged with ignorance, but Israel with unbelief, yea, with a positive refusal of him. Instead of welcoming the heavenly visitant, they drove him from the door, even banished him from the earth. Who would have supposed that a people whose believing ancestors had been eagerly awaiting the appearance of the Messiah for long ages past, would have rejected him when he came among them. 
Yet, so it was. And should any ask, how could these things be? We answer, the very thing is expressly foretold by the, his own prophets, that he should possess neither form nor comeliness in their eyes. And when they should see him, there would be no beauty that they should desire him. Ah, would it have been any wonder if he had turned away from such ingrates with disgust. What blessed subjection to the Father's will, and what wondrous love for sinners, that he remained on earth in order that he might die the death of a cross. These words, they did not know him, they did not receive him, are some of the saddest words you'll find in Scripture. They're so sad. Jesus went to his own people, the nation Israel. They rejected him. He went to his own home, but he had no welcome there. They did not know him. They did not receive him. And as a result of that, they cannot become children of God. They cannot become children of God. Verse number 12, But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born. And then I emphasize, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. When you take him out of the picture, you really have nothing left. And if they do not know him, and they do not receive him, what is left for them to do? You want to know what it is? It's called designer faith. Fashion it how you feel happy about it. Fashion your own faith. Like go down to Subway and build your own sandwich. Build your own faith. Build it out of the parts you think are impressive enough to get by God's gate. Fashion it according to your own desires, according to things that this world would be impressed with. Something that honors man. Something to fill the gap. Let's try natural descent. Let's talk about our parents. Our parents, the Jews would say, our father was Abraham. We're a descendant of Abraham. We're in, right? Because of Abraham. All it takes is having the right father, right? Which of us today are saved because of mom or dad? Not because they talk to you about your faith, but because they were saved. And because you're born to them, now you're saved, right? No. Can't be that way. Some people think that some sort of spiritual merit on part of their parents comes down like a, a heritage to them. It's passed down and, the, and now they're saved. You know, I, I say it real simply. Martin Luther was a great man. But simply being a Lutheran and wearing the title doesn't entitle you salvation through Luther. Doesn't do you any good. If salvation was based on parentage, what would you do if your parents weren't saved? You'd be in trouble, wouldn't you? How do you fix that problem? Scripture says God's not a respecter of persons. You can be a direct descendant of the finest preachers, theologians, whatever you want, but it won't save you. It's not of blood. It's not of blood. It's not of blood. It never will be of blood. That's what he says. 
Yet our world will fashion itself. And our world will fashion it and say, oh, it's a decision that we make. It's our own, you know, pick us up by the bootstraps. We're going to do this kind of uh, will. We're going to do it. A decision you make on your own free will. That, now that will save you. Now some people boast of a free will. I personally do not boast of mine. I've seen it in action. It's an ugly little thing. Everything that is spiritual, it runs from. Now, maybe you have a different kind than me. Mine's a little monster. It craves the flesh and not the spirit. It's the will of the flesh that it's all about. And that's not a spiritual champion, folks. It likes to fight, but it loses because it's fighting against God himself. The flesh always likes to fight against the spirit. Galatians 5 will tell you that. Is characterized in Isaiah 53 as scattering the sheep, not collecting them. It seeks its own plan. It does its own scheme. It's got its own way to heaven. And it thinks that it can bargain with God. I know people like that. Who have literally said to me, when I've talked to them about their faith, they said this. When I get there, we will work that out. You cannot negotiate with God on these terms. You cannot do it. It's not by the will of the flesh. It will never be. Ask the rich young ruler. He tried. He failed. You can't come to God that way. You can't bargain with him. You can't negotiate in that fashion. Some say, okay, so if the will of man doesn't do any good, uh, the will of the flesh, how about the will of man? How about the will of man, you know, there is something to be said about this. I, I knew somebody, a, a lady, she actually told me this. She said that she had gone overseas. She wanted to see the Pope in one of the instances that he was visiting in a town. She stood in the crowd close enough that when he was sprinkling that center thing, she was splashed. She says, now I have it made. I've been splashed. And I've got a secure entrance into heaven. And the reality was that she just got wet. And she was no closer to the Lord than she was before. I know people who prayed and prayed for Junior. And the comments to me were like this. Well, Junior just ain't the Christian he ought to be. Junior wasn't a Christian at all. But mom couldn't see it. And mom prayed for him. and prayed. He needed prayed for it. I agree with that. But she thought that just the merits of her prayers would be enough to get God to change his mind about Junior. And she prayed, 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 convincing herself that God will let Junior in because mom was so sincere. It doesn't work that way. It's not the will of man. Not by the will of man. Jesus is the only way, right? Jesus is the only truth. Jesus is the only life. It's not by blood. It's not by the will of the flesh. It's not by the will of mind. There is no designer faith. You can't design it your way. You can understand that the world is going to try, though. Why are they going to try? Because they've rejected the only true light. They're trying to fill the gap. And because they've rejected him, I say it again, when you reject him, you've rejected everything. They did not know him. 
They did not receive him, but they go after cheap substitutes and imitation faiths, and they cannot become a child of God that way. That's the reality. That's what John is showing us here. So we have a straightforward series of questions that come from this. You ask your own heart, how have I become a child of God? I'm assuming you have become a child of God, of course. I'm assuming that point. So I ask that. Have you become a child of God? How have you become a child of God? Were you a child of your own invention? Is it your own imagination? Is it your own effort that's brought this about? Or do you know Jesus? Have you received Jesus? Or have you been trying to achieve salvation some other way? Here's Peter. Picture him one day standing in front of all these religious dignitaries. The rulers are there in the room. All the religious rulers are present. The elders of the land. Oh, they're important people. They're in that room. The scribes are all there. Important individuals in that room. Annas, the high priest, is in that room. Caiaphas, his son-in-law, who's also high priest. By the way, that's illegal, but they were still doing it. Caiaphas, the high priest, is in that room. John and Alexander, John the descendant of these high priests. Alexander, also of the high priestly family, not John the gospel writer, but another John and Alexander. They're in this room. You have all the important religious people in the territory in that room. Each one doing their religious thing, right? Their job, their, their whatever you want to call it. That's what they've been doing their life long. And here Peter looks them right in the eye and he says these words. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which men must be saved. One name. Whose is it? Jesus. One name. They did not respond to that message when Peter told them. They did not believe. They did not know Jesus. They did not receive Jesus. They tried it their own way. And they failed to become children of God. They failed. Are you like them? I ask it that way. Because we're good at religion. We're good at the practice of of looking spiritual. We're good at going to church. We're good at singing the songs. We're good at listening to the service. We're good at all these things. But what's that going to bring us to if that's what we anchor our faith to? You will not become a child of God through all those things. You will become a child of God only through Jesus. That's where it stands between you and God today. There are those who rejected And we just read their story. I hope it's not yours. But there are those who rejected, failed to become children of God because they thought they'd try it some other way. You can't go any other way but Jesus. And I appeal to you today as we come on this time of year, as we especially take these words into our hearts today. Where are you right now with your walk with Him? Do you believe Him? 
Have you received him? Is he your savior? Is that where your faith is anchored and only in him? Only in him? I trust that's where you are. If not, you can talk to him. Do you know what? He's waiting for you. He's welcoming you to come. He says, come unto me. Right? How often he gives us that invitation. There's an opportunity here, a beautiful one. You can have that right relationship with him today. And for you who know him already, how have you been living that out lately? You've been stressing more of the works that you've been doing, ancestry that you have, the effort you're giving to it all. You're going to impress God? <laughs> Please, stop again and look. Our salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. That's it. That's who we're talking of here when we speak of these things. That's who we live for. That's who we worship. Let's talk to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, you know where we are right now. Every single person in this room, you know exactly where they are right now with their relationship with you. If there is, again, I said this as I started in prayer, if there is somebody in our midst, Lord, that needs to know Christ as Savior, draw them to yourself even now. Your word is powerful. It accomplishes everything you set out for it to do. And I pray that you have sent it out to change a life today forever. For those of us who know you, Lord, those of us who have lived uh, as believers, and yet we've given a lot of emphasis to the things that are designed by ourselves, show us again that it's only Christ that we're here to worship. Only Christ that gets the glory. Only Christ who is the center of our faith. Draw our, our, our minds that way, please, too, during this time of year, and let us rejoice and worship as we ought, all to the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.